Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're getting back into the world of literature, and we're going to move into um, an area of literature that really starts to take off a little bit more in the 20th century, uh, and that's um, the, er- uh, the area of uh, diary or journal writing. Um, you did have some of this in earlier time periods. You did have epistolary novels, um, which epistolary novels were are novels that are basically all told through journal entries and through letters. Um, Early example of this would be Clarissa. Most people wouldn't be familiar with Clarissa unless you're an English major. Uh, But an example that people would be familiar with would be something like uh, Dracula uh, by uh, Bram Stoker. Uh, That is an epistolary novel. All of the action in that book is told through journal entries, it's told through diary, you know, diaries, it's told through letters back and forth. Um, that's the type of novel. But that was a fiction novel. When you get into the 20th century, you start to get these that are nonfiction. You get people talking about their own lives, their own exploits. And, and this is something that really is a big break from what came before, because you always had sort of fictionalized characters. And in the 20th century, in the modernist period, you really start to break down some of that boundary to where you're getting um, still somewhat of fiction. We talked about Henry Miller before in an earlier episode last season um, where he's sort of writing about his life but also fictionalizing things as he goes. Um, but the the main character in his, most of his books is Henry Miller. Um, and so you start to get a, a rise in this more personal literature. And again, this, this comes from this experimentation of the modernists, this, this desire to get something that is more real, reflects life, real life more directly. Because remember, starting with the realists and the naturalists, you know, people wanted to portray life the way it was. Well, and you start to get into the 20th century and people realize, for the most part, these are pretty flat um, interpretations of the way reality is. Novels become much more psychological. Part of this has to do with the influence of people like Dostoevsky, which we will talk about Dostoevsky, but we'll probably do him under a... Uh, in, in the philosophy discussions, because he's, he's also very influential in the world of philosophy and existentialism. Um, but he's, he's influential in literature, too. You know, he starts to do these psychological novels where you get into the uh, psychology of the main character. But again, these are fiction novels. What Miller and Nin and a lot of the people in the 20th century are doing is they're writing about their own lives. Now, Nin had started writing... Um, Anais Nin is her full name. She had started writing journals when she was 11 years old, uh, shortly after her uh, father basically left the family. And her journal started out as a, as a way of kind of having a communication with her father, even though he was gone. Uh, and she kept up this, these journals throughout her entire life, up until the end of her life. And so if you go through and read these journals you really get a very in-depth um, uh, psychological study of this of this woman because it, it goes through all of her stages. 
You know, she's not writing this in hindsight. Um, it's it's not like she's, you know, when she's 40, she starts talking about what she did when she was 20 and 30 and a teenager. You know, she's every day sitting down with these journals and writing the things and the thoughts that occurred that day. And it was only towards the end of her life that she actually decides to start publishing these. Now, most of her published works up until then uh, were erotica. And this is one of the reasons that you don't usually study Nin or Miller uh, much, in even in literature programs, because they're often just dismissed as, well, they just wrote dirty books. They just wrote erotica. Well, yeah, they wrote the, they did write that, but that wasn't the main thrust of their book, to, to use a bad pun. Um, these were also about life. It was about challenging boundaries. Uh, and Nin definitely challenges a lot of boundaries in her life. I'm not going to go into all of it, but there's pretty much not a boundary that she didn't come up against and challenge. Um, and she was very open about this in her diary. She wrote about it with a lot of honesty. She didn't, she wasn't hiding. She was constantly seeking to know more and to understand more. And as you read through these, these diaries, you really get that sense. And she's trying to look at her life from every angle, you know, talking about the influence of, you know, Freud and psychology and psychoanalysis. She actually undergoes psychoanalysis throughout large parts of her life. And so some of her journal entries actually have to do with, you know, talking about her psychoanalysis directly. Um, she talks about dreams she has. When she has dreams, she records them and she tries to kind of analyze what does this mean. So she's a very deep thinker. Um, and this is one of the things, and she has another essay that's, that's about writing, where she talks about the difference um, in earlier male writing and in what's sort of emerging as female writing is there's this breaking away from the narrative. There's this breaking away from the plot, the, you know, the formalized structure. And again, this goes in with the modernists. They were trying to experiment with form to get something that more accurately reflected real life. You know, she felt that um, novels uh, in the past had been too plot and structure oriented and never really got much below the surface. They were kind of dealing mostly with the superficialities. You know, you might get momentary glimpses inside of the characters, but not very much. Um, and starting in the 20th century, this starts to change. And she's one of the, the writers and thinkers that's really, you know, kind of involved in this. Even though a lot of her writings weren't published until very late in her life or even after she was dead, um, she still was one of those people that knew other writers and new artists and she moved in those circles. You know, she lived in Paris for a while. This is where she met Henry Miller, um, you know, much like Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein sort of had shaped helped shape the gen the lost generation of the 20s, uh, Nin really kind of starts to help shape some of the generation of the 30s and moves in a lot of these circles and into the 40s and 50s. So they play very, both Stein and Nin play very important roles in literature, both in what they produce and in sort of what they bring out in other writers. 
And a lot of writers, whether they know it or not, uh, owe a lot of their uh, owe a lot of thanks to these two women because a lot of the things that we think of as you know well this is just normal things in literature are kind of pioneered by this the the movement of of literature to being more personal to to moving more into the psychology moving more into uh, you know the way real life works life doesn't move in a straightforward plot line where you have an initial incident, rising action, a climax in the action, and then, you know, it tapers down to the resolution. Um, life is a lot of back and forths. It's flashbacks and flash forwards and full of dead ends. You start to go in one direction. That doesn't pan out and it just kind of gets abandoned. You move in a different direction. And they're really bringing all of this into the writing. And in her journals, you can really see this. And you know, if you try to follow this as a straightforward story, about the only way you can get it as a straightforward story is that she did tell it as it was occurring in her life. But because it was as it was occurring in her life, you get these movements back and forth where sometimes she'll make progress in one area or seem like she's moving in one direction and she sets these goals and then things come along and alter it and she either, you know, abandons it or finds a better direction and moves in a, in a different direction. So if you're looking for something that is going to be, you know, take you straight forward through a story, what you're looking for, you're not really going to be uh, a very big fan of it. But if you're looking for something that goes into a lot of depths that other, other writers don't even want to touch, um, and this is part of the reason that she didn't uh, publish her journals until close to her death and then had some of them even were after her death uh, because one she was kind of really putting everything about herself out there the most intimate details of her life uh, including her sex life including uh, you know her psychological well-being all of this is in the pages of these journals so I'm going to go through and read some of the passages and I'm only going to give you really a very short um, amount from one of the journals. So this is only a short amount of time, but I think these, some of these readings give a little bit of, uh, a little bit of scope to, to exactly how much ground she covers in these journals. You know, anyone who wishes to be a writer, uh, you know, really wouldn't do themselves harm following in her footsteps and journaling regularly. You know, she talks about this directly, how journaling, you know, frees a lot of things that wouldn't be freed up if she were simply just sitting down and trying to write stories all the time. You know, it allows her to break out of that uh, pre-constructed narrative and to sort of embrace life as it is. Okay, so I want to start with uh, a little bit of her discussion um, about analysis, and this is from... Let me see what time period this is from. This is from the fall of 1955 is the sort of the section that they put this in. Uh, she says, to sum up an extraordinary change caused by analysis, a month without depressions, anxieties, or nervousness, I feel installed in the present. I give myself to it. I no longer feel angers, walls, hostilities in relation to the world. My criticalness has lessened. I enjoy what comes. I'm not nervous beforehand. I am gay and free. 
The fears have decreased. The fears of being unable to earn a living. The fears of losing love. There is less rebellion, more smoothness and lightness in living. There is an ability to throw off anxiety. There is no bitterness, no friction. And my anger against America for not accepting my work has gone. Having fewer conflicts, I get less tired and accomplish more. And this is this passage, you know, 1955 is somewhat later on in her life. This, she's not a young woman anymore. And this is something that if any of you have you know, are older and, you know, and, and you start getting into your 40s and 50s and beyond, you do start to realize uh, through either, you know, self-analysis or through just looking at the world and living in the world long enough that there's a lot of these things you just have to let go. You know, when people ask me, you know, wouldn't you want to be 20 again? And my answer is absolutely not. You could never pay me enough to go back there. Um, you know, the 20s were too full of, my 20s as, as 20s in the age, uh, it was too full of insecurities, too full of worrying about what other people expected, too full of not having a good sense of who I was and, and worrying about everything and how it was going to look and how it was going to come across. And as you start to get older and as you start to, you know, sort of understand yourself better, you realize that a lot of this stuff is foolishness. A lot of this stuff you can just let go. And this is kind of what she's talking about. You know, through her, with her, it was actual, you know, analysis through her diaries, but analysis with, you know, a psychiatrist. She's able to sort of put all of the things that had been making her miserable uh, off to the side and, and finally actually start to live life. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. This is going into this. Uh, the rest of these are going to be from uh, basically what says winter 1955 to 1956. One of the things that she does in her journal is she does um, she does a lot of like character sketches of people she knows or of just random people she sees in the street and. If you're a writer and if you want to write well, this is a very good exercise to do. Um, one of the things about her is when she does these, she doesn't do them, um, most of the ones I've read anyways, she doesn't really do them out of a sense of spite. She's not doing it and kind of looking down on these people. She's trying to kind of look at, at, at people she knows and people she doesn't know and get a sense of, you know, what are some of the depths that are probably lurking under the surface that we see? And in this passage I want to read, um, she's talking about a woman she sees in Los Angeles. She says, I saw a woman dressed in the clothes you see in thrift shops, a faded rose lace dress from the 20s with faded roses on her shoulder, a faded scarf and torn faded parasol. She wore satin high heel shoes and a hat with a veil and carried an evening bag. This was in the bus, in the morning, and I could see her following the trail of long-past garden parties, preferring echoes, and echoes of festivities to the present drabness, preferring a faded rose, a faded past, to a plain present. Seeing her, like, seeing her was like seeing a faded pressed flower in a book, but her fantasy satisfied her. She sat not like a ghost, but like one on her way to a party. And her memories, at least from the expectant expression on her face and the lightness of her steps, as she left the bus, had not faded as much as the clothes. So this, 
you know paragraph just gives a really good description of of this woman and and you know this could have been done from a a mean spirited because the the woman's wearing outdated clothes and they're kind of faded and a little bit on the ragged side and you know the the temptation of a lot of people would be to look at that and say oh you know this is just some bum that's let go you know and dropped out of life and is it has no value and yet she sees all of this not as uh, someone who's worthless, but as someone who's had a very interesting past and still has a very interesting internal life. You know, what she sees may be completely wrong. But one of the things about being a writer and about, you know, looking at the world in, in general, even as a, as a non-writer, as a, as a regular person, uh, a lot of how we view things a lot of how we take the world really does come down to our perception you know if we're looking for the negative if we're looking for the bad if we're just looking for horror and tragedy that's what you're going to find but if you're looking for the bright spots you know in between the tragedies the the signs of hope the the signs that you know there's still beauty there's still art there's still wonder in the world then those are the things you're going to be more likely to find. And in her in her diaries, you do get a lot of this sense of she is very much aware uh, and, and talks about how much her perception of reality actually changes through her life and how it actually um, really changes how she sees the world and how she... Uh, how well she's at ease in that world, how comfortable she becomes in that world. Okay, I'm going to move a little further ahead. Um, in this passage, this is a short one, and I, I just want to read. She says, Not being published does not make me feel buried, dead. It bears no relation to my love of writing, like a singer's love of singing. You know, this, these little notes like this, these little small sections are something that if if you are a writer or a singer or a musician or you know anything uh anything artistic uh you do sort of have to come to a point where you decide do I do this because I'm loving to do this or is this just something I'm doing because I want to get famous and have a lot of money and if you're only reason for doing it is to have a lot of money and be famous, odds are you're going to be very disappointed. And you're probably not going to produce very good work either because you're constantly going to be trying to say, well, what can I put out that will sell? You know, what can I put out there that people will love instead of putting out there what there is, you know, putting out what what you're inspired to write or sing or, you know, sculpt or paint. Uh, and so this is kind of, there's there's little points in here where, you know, there's sort of advice, but advice in lots of different directions, advice about living in general, but advice geared towards people who are writers, people who are artists. And, you know, she understands that a lot of what she says wouldn't be understood by regular people who live a, you know, a nine to five existence and just want you know, stability and some money in the bank. She actually kind of rails against that. And we'll talk about some of those passages as well. Okay, I want to move a little uh, 
further. Um, she starts to talk about anxiety a little bit, a little after that. She says, I am convalescent. Anxiety is like a fulgurant, uh, decimating fever. It is gone. The ordinary rebel thinks. I am in revolt against housework and engages in destructive revolt. The housework has to be done. When one is helpless, when, is, when one is helped by analysis, destructive rebellions end. The housework is there, but I found ways to lighten, minimize, accelerate it, and I found and I have more energy for it since I do not spend this energy in fretting over it. So this kind of goes back to what I was saying that she was talking about with changing your perception changes your reality. It's not that she's suddenly in love with doing housework. It's that she realizes that her hatred of it, her fretting over it, uh, her wanting to avoid it, her rebelling against it, made it that much worse than it actually was. It's kind of the idea that if you, you know, you see a piece of paper on the ground and you, you know, rant and rave for 20 minutes of, well, why did somebody throw that on the ground? There's, you know, why is there paper on the ground? There should be throwing it in the basket. The basket's right there. You spent all of this energy and, and, animation that if you'd have just picked it up and threw it in the garbage can and gone about on about your day you wouldn't have wasted all of that time and energy and this is kind of a uh, really something i see as a good uh, point for modern life you know think about how much in modern life we let the smallest things throw us into a rage you know we we, we get all you know just completely worked up and destroyed about something and then afterwards if you sit back, sit down and think about it you're like that was really stupid I, I i wasted all of my energy and my anger on something that really wasn't a big deal uh, so this is you know again and this is this is in these diaries you're getting someone who is really looking at life and not looking at their life as you know i'm i'm perfect but looking at their life and going, okay, these are my failures, these are my successes, and, and sort of trying to move towards the successes, taking a real examination of her life. You know, the, um, the, the cry of Socrates, know thyself. Well, you know, Nin would make Socrates proud because I don't think too many people, including Socrates, ever dove as deeply into themselves as she does. Um, Socrates dove deeply into philosophy, but Nin dives into Nin and, and into the society and to the people around her, too. Okay, uh, skip ahead a little bit to... All right, uh, here she talks a, lot of, a little bit about kind of what she wants, um, and what she wants is to be an artist. What I most wanted was an artist's life, that is, few possessions, simple surroundings, a simple way of life which would require very little money and very little compromise. But then a woman's life is always derivative in the sense that the man's profession creates the initial place, frame, atmosphere, design of the life. Okay, this is another area where Nin is often, you know, studied and talked about a lot, and that comes, and that area is in, you know, feminist criticism and feminist critique of society, because she's kind of talking about the difference. Now, if you listen to, you know, the things that 
Henry Miller says about being an artist, you get a very different sense sometimes. And a lot of that has to do with Miller was a man, and that was a lot more acceptable, even though not completely acceptable in, you know, to be an artist, but much more to be much more acceptable if you were a man than if you were a woman. You know, you have to remember prior to the 20th century, most of the female authors who were published uh, didn't write under their own names. You know, they wrote under men's names because they wouldn't have been taken seriously had, you know, everyone known, oh, this is a woman that wrote this book. So there's, there is sort of this kind of pushing back and how much uh, the reality kind of inflicts upon women's lives. Because you have to remember, too, you know, coming out of this time period, going up, this is in the 1950s, it was still very much considered that women weren't supposed to want these things. Women were supposed to want a husband, children, cook, clean, take care of the house. They weren't supposed to have ambitions. They weren't supposed to be artists. They weren't supposed to, you know, want to be independent. They were, um, you know, they were basically in a lot of ways thought of and, and treated like dolls. Um, this is one of the, you know, big criticisms that start to come out about, you know, from the feminists and from the female writers is that society, you know, saw it as, well, this is not very feminine if a woman thinks too much. This is not very feminine if a woman, you know, wants to work. That was seen as something a man should do. And if a woman was, you know, feminine, then she would just get a man and a man would do all of these things. And then she could be perfectly happy as a wife and a mother. And this, you know, is definitely something she's kind of pushing back against because she was married at a fairly early age uh, to a man who was made a good living. That was that was from a wealthy family. And so this, you know, immediately going from a, a childhood of poverty into this, uh, you know, married life of having a lot of things, she feels kind of uh, spoils her a little bit and, and makes her want things that if she had been able to just stay true to herself and be an artist, she wouldn't want these things. And they, they became distractions. All right. Um, go a little. And a little further in, she does talk about um, sort of the poverty of her childhood. You know, one of the things that happened was that basically after her father left when she was 11, her mother, um, you know, moved her to New York from Spain. And her mother was just terrible with money. She wasn't good at making money. And she would, um, you know, she, her mother had come from, uh, you know, a family that was fairly upper class. And so that was never really taught. That was never really expected. And so her family would kind of talk her into these schemes that would end up costing her more money than she was making. And then actually had to take side jobs and do all kinds of other things just to kind of help keep her mother afloat. So she grew up with this anxiety about money. And, you know, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of hammered home that, you know, you had to sort of have a man that would take care of you. And once she got married, she realized, eh, this is not the life I wanted. This is not what I need. Um, and, and so she was, 
this is when she started to kind of branch out into you know wanting to become an artist wanting to become a writer uh, wanting to do different things with her life okay uh, where is it? I'm looking for the passage that she talks about. Okay, okay. Um, this this is a passage where she kind of makes a little bit of a a criticism of American society. Um, she talks about blow after blow after blow, strongly tempted to burn the diary unless I go to Paris and live the life of Genet. Openly criminal and monster, I will die. The atmosphere of America, Puritan, middle class, hypocritical, afraid of reality, is like the total absence of oxygen. She's not the only writer to feel this way, and it's not, it's not just something that's exclusive even to female writers. There's a big reason that a lot of the people in the 20s and 30s that were Americans ended up in Paris. They felt that the American dream, the American lifestyle was very much opposed to the artist. You know, everything in America was about how much money can you make? Um, you know, what, what, what can you earn? What can you buy? What can you show for it? And if what you were doing wasn't immediately, you know, translatable to money and large amounts of money, it was considered a worthless endeavor. It was considered a waste of time. And we can still see this, you know, when you, when you, somebody tells somebody that they're majoring in art or liberal arts or literature or philosophy, the first question that most people will ask them is, what can you make with that? In other words, you know, how is that going to translate into making a good living? Um, and, and, you know, sort of the culture of the of America is all about that. It's If this doesn't translate into making a good living, if this doesn't translate into wealth, then there's no value to it. Okay, uh, I'm going to break off for there. Obviously, there's a lot more I could do with her. And in future seasons, when I go into more depth on individual writers, I will be talking about her a lot more. I'll be talking about all of these people, both the philosophers and the writers, and even more than what we've discussed already in the future. Um, but I'm these first couple of, uh, seasons, I'm, I'm still trying to keep it to introductory, just so you're getting a sense of who these people are and some of their main writings and some of their main ideas. All right. I hope all of you are doing well and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.